Um, can you explain in brief what a seal does? It's AES seal. The, uh, ah, AES seal, yeah. AES. Yeah, that's a long story as well. We had a great trademark, but people stole it. Oh. Um, the group is AES Engineering Limited. AES seal is the largest part, and we make environmental products. They basically stop things from leaking into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But really, we're not a product company. We're a reliability business. We help customers make their process capable. The other part of the group is AVT Reliability Limited, which is a reliability business. And again, we make people um, make their process more capable or help them make their process more capable. So basically, we stop things from breaking and we make production processes work longer. Nice, nice. Um, you, you said that you're beyond net zero in your UK yeah. business and you're creating a roadmap to help other companies. Can you explain how you've achieved that? Yeah, there's scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Scope one emissions are basically uh, gas and petrol and diesel. Mm-hmm. They're about 280 tonnes. Scope two emissions are electricity and our scope two emissions are about 865 tonnes. However, as we've been buying green electricity since 2007, the CO2E tariff is zero because it's zero emission electricity. So basically we bought 280 tonnes worth of offsets for our scope one and two emissions. Offsets are currently very inexpensive. They're about seven pounds a tonne in the UK, but they're about 57 euros in the European trading scheme, which we abandoned when we left uh, the European Union. And I believe they'll end up being about 100 tonnes a tonne in the fullness of time. So currently you can buy offsets very inexpensively. Mm-hmm. Offsets are gold standard schemes in various parts of the world. Um, they're accredited by the Carbon Trust. Um, scope 3 emissions are rather different. Scope 3 emissions are the emissions in your supply chain. But just like an electric car manufacturer has scope 3 costs, negative emissions as a result of making the car. Mm. They have an avoidance based upon their customers avoiding the use of petrol and diesel whenever they drive the car. Mm -hmm. Our products cost much less, relatively speaking, to produce than a car does and they create vastly more benefits, very Mm. vastly more CO2e saving for the customer. So we calculate our scope three global emissions are about 112,000 tonnes that's our supply chain issues. And our avoidance is somewhere between two and five million tonnes. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't be bothered counting it because it won't add any benefit to the planet whatsoever if we count up our avoidance. But our scope three avoidance is massively greater than the cost of producing our products. And it's certified. Yeah. Or accredited, should I say, by SGS, mm-hmm. Societe Generale Suisse. Yeah. So how would you, what would you recommend, what steps would you recommend other companies take who want to go net zero? I'd advise them to join Better World Dot Solutions, which is a best practice sharing organization. It's <coughs> completely free. It's philanthropic. And basically, all they really need to do is say, we've adopted a policy to prevent global warming. And the key constituents of that policy are make environmental um, uh, projects a priority for investment. Mm 
when they give you the same return as a non-environmental one. It's not, not very arduous, frankly. Advise what level of investment you want to have brought to your attention and advise the time frame in which you give a reply. But the key is to open it up to their own workforce and to suppliers and possibly to customers. Because my view is that particularly large businesses are so disconnected from their operations mm. that they're not destroying the planet and purpose. There's lots of processes taking place that if they just knew about, they'd make an appropriate investment decision and they'd, frankly, make more money. Who wouldn't want to make more money, save the planet and maybe win an environmental award and get good PR as well? Mm. Yeah. So would you say that that is maybe the biggest challenge or, or one of the biggest challenges that, that manufacturers face in getting to net zero is not fully understanding their processes? Or are there other you know, major factors that get in the way? Well, there's cost. It's going to be extremely difficult for most businesses to deal with their scope three emissions in the use of their products. Frankly, I pity the oil and gas companies because they've got scope three costs, but they've also got scope three costs in the use of their products. I mean, financial services industries probably don't have any uh, or don't have any real scope three avoidance, but neither do they have scope three costs unless you consider that the businesses that they invest in per se are polluters or bad for the environment. But I think it's going to be really difficult for some. But frankly, even though our 112,000 tons um, is um, with our supply chain, and we have calculated we've got 4,500 tons of scope one and scope two global emissions, we're going to concentrate on reducing our scope one and scope two emissions to 2,500 tons. It'll cost us 29 million pounds, mm-hmm. approximately, mm-hmm. Uh, because that is under our control, and that we can do something about, and that we are going to do something about. And then what are the practical steps that will be taken? Where will this investment go? Well, we've got factories all over the world, mm-hmm. so we'll put solar in where appropriate. Where it is possible to connect to the grid, we've ordered battery arrays, which are very expensive, you know, million pounds plus battery arrays, because the daytime energy use is 25% higher than nighttime. So if you've 12.5% battery storage, you automatically reduce peak demand during the daytime. But where you've got a sophisticated enough grid, there are also times during the day when there's too much wind and too much sun. So you actually buy solar or you're given it for free whenever there's excess energy going down the grid and you have smart metering that releases it back to the grid at appropriate times. But basically a combination of those. We also just drilled on this site 110 meter deep and we found water because air heat pumps are not very energy efficient. They just Mm -hmm. displace um, brown energy, gas, with green energy, assuming you're buying green energy, of course, and assuming it's available. Ground heat pumps are a bit more efficient. Water heat pumps are quite a lot more efficient. Well, lucky us, we found water at 110 meters deep. So we will probably end up investing in water heat pumps on this site. But basically, um, for our scope one and scope two offsetting schemes, we bought already this year 
four and a half thousand tons of offsets and we've got a carbon trust certificate for it it'll never be less expensive to buy offsets but we're literally looking all over the world at where we can buy um well build from scratch a solar plant so we intend to create a solar plant of up to 12 and a half gigawatts somewhere in the world Mm -hmm. um but we're looking at that in the combination probably of tree planting and we've also looked at peat bog reclamation which appears to be another environmentally friendly thing to do um we're doing our little bit yeah so um what what has been the the biggest obstacle for for you i mean you you've actually you've got the investment so that's something that for most companies they may struggle with right to say how can we build a real a clean infrastructure uh, and now you're 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 finding your offsets, building a solar plant. You're looking for ways to use green energy. Um, is there anything uh, along this process where it's just been really difficult to 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 find the thing that's going to make manufacturing cleaner, or or has it just been you know a step by step sort of research investigation process? No, we've just invested hundreds of hours in understanding the mm, subject. Okay. Yeah. And. We've got businesses in 43 countries. Yes. Some of them are sunnier than others. Yeah. And any domain that is proving itself particularly bureaucratic and particularly difficult and isn't interested, we just go, so what? And we go, we, want, we don't need anybody's money. We need people who are willing to assist us in saving the planet. Mm-hmm. And when we get any obstacle, we just say goodbye, thank you very much, and we just go find somebody else who wants to talk to us nicely mm-hmm. and who wants to make it happen. It's about management in our business. Mm-hmm. When you've got businesses in 43 countries, it's not easy to manage. No, no. Um, so for clean tech startups, uh, there are lots of them popping up now, and you know a lot of them are manufacturers as well. Mm. Um, what what would you recommend that they do so they actually can start off on the right page um, with their manufacturing? How, how should they build? What what steps should they take? Well, I guess it depends how much money they have and it guess what stage of development that they're at. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of startup businesses that have a party whenever they raise the money. Yeah. I think maybe they should have a party the first year they actually make a return on their investment. <laughs> you know, well, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> At the end of the day, sustainable businesses are based upon your ability to pay your own way and not keep on tapping the market for more and more money. So some of them have surprised me, like Amazon Mm. um, actually did have a mission statement, lose money for years, build a huge business. Um, Sky did, did amazing things in terms of putting a huge infrastructure and they got a great return on their investment. But a lot of startups will never ever make a cent. So what I would say to all of them is, go and do a biscuit course in accounting if you haven't done it already. Understand it's not about the burn rate. Understand it's about understanding your cash flow and your profit and loss account and your balance sheet. And frankly, many of those businesses probably can't afford to make the appropriate investments in setting up a clean factory unless their investors give them the money for philanthropic purposes for the good of the planet. Mm. So essentially, it's creating a plan for how much they would actually need to build the, to build their manufacturing clean and then well, factoring that into their pitch um, well, if they want to start depends. out. 
Yeah, it depends yeah. how big they are because there's not much point in greening a building that's owned by a landlord, is there? Yeah. Because the landlord's just going to charge you more rent for the money that you've spent in greening the building. Mm -hmm. So if the startup isn't going to own its own premises, that is not really an opportunity for them. And I don't think you'll find many bream excellent buildings anywhere in the world to rent at this point in time. So I think it's going to be relatively difficult for startups. But of course, there's all these businesses raising huge amounts of money. And if they raise the huge amounts of money, and if they build a facility, well, they should build it to Bream Excellent or some other uh, standard for environmental friendliness, because if you're going to build a Bream Excellent building, you need to do it at the beginning of the process. Yeah. Clearly, they should put electric vehicle charging points in. They should look at at least having their pool cars or the cars for people who don't going to have range anxiety, which is a huge issue at this point in time. Um, so that they can get to and from work or to and from where they decide to work on a single charge. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense now. But the reality is um, those startup companies maybe will be what saves the planet because fuel cells or hydrogen or electrolyzers. We ourselves are doing something for the university, which we signed an NDA on. Um, which will be their intellectual property, not ours. Mm. But it's a device that will almost certainly generate less CO2e to suck 2OC out of the environment. And we're doing it for free for them because we've got the skill set to do it. And the university doesn't have that skill set. We'll even write their patent for them if necessary. We're doing it completely pro bono. And we're pretty convinced that it will work because where there's concentrations of CO2, 5% or more, the cost of taking the CO2 out of the environment will be less. Of course, then you then have concentrated CO2 in liquid form. Mm -hmm. And they basically believe that they've got a process that might convert that into DME, which is a cleaner fuel um, for uh, than, than diesel, and which can easily be used in diesel engines with little or no conversion. So that sort of stuff is where industry can get involved with academia. Mm. We make things. They've got the brain power. Um, we're prepared to do it for the good of the planet. And maybe it will make a difference. And maybe it won't. We're pretty convinced it'll work. Yeah. To industrialise it is another matter altogether. Mm -mm. Yeah. Well, that's that's fantastic. I think that's, that's what we need is more collaboration between the you know businesses clean tech businesses and universities who is that that combination can actually bring out a lot more innovation and um yeah hopefully new amazing new solutions i think we need to start taking co2 out of the atmosphere right um, <laughs> it's not enough thing, we're, we're at a point where there's so much going into the atmosphere we know that we're not making the transition fast enough as globally right um, to, to go CO, CO2 free. So the, the, I think that's really one of the only options to, to potentially stop you know, a major catastrophe is to find ways to take it out. Politicians aren't going to save the world. Engineers and scientists might. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to some personal questions. Can you tell me a bit about your background and yeah, you, you know, your upbringing, how, how that influenced where you are today? 
Well, I was brought up in a small town called Brathfryland in Northern Ireland with a population of about 2,000. The family business was a garage. It was a Ford dealership. My father was a consummate salesman and the leader of the family business. Um, I can't say that we were wealthy, but we were relatively well off for such a small village or a townlet, call it what you want. Um, worked very long hours. Um, taught me that uh, working with family was probably not the best idea um, and that you really needed to surround yourself with capable people. Um, I got a decent education, went to Queen's University in Belfast, um, barely attended, scraped a degree. Um, and um, when I found business, I found something that interested me. So I went back and looked at some of the stuff I had not learned at university. And I decided to make myself um, a non-qualified uh, accountant. So basically, I taught myself accounts from T-balances, the old-fashioned way, mm -hmm. on bits of paper. Because I think if you're in business, you need to be numerate. So even though I wasn't working for myself, I was fascinated by the idea of being able to buy and sell and make a profit, which is what I did for the businesses that I, I worked for be, before I ended up get, um, getting involved in my own. I also found that it was pretty important to understand um, the law. And I'd done commercial law as a subset of my degree. So really what happened was I worked for a business in Rotherham, which is actually in Sheffield, which is actually this business. I left after two years and went back to Northern Ireland to work for a Northern Ireland company. Two years later, we bought the business that I'd worked for in Sheffield in partnership. I got 48% of the business, he got 52%. Within six months, he sold me a 2% share. We ran the business, but that's the time I decided I'd better become an accountant and a lawyer because we got um, taken advantage of by oh. the corporation that we bought it from and from the incompetent lawyers and accountants who uh, negotiated the transaction. Oh. Transaction was £25,000 and I got lumbered with a £40,000 tax bill that, oh. funnily enough, became current in the accounts of my business, even though it was deferred in the accounts of the group. Mm. So, failed to attend to detail. Um, basically, we trebled the business in a period of about two and a half years. And then one Friday afternoon, the American distributor gave me notice and had already basically stolen just about all of the people in the business. Oh my so, goodness. I decided on Monday morning to make them regret the day I was born. So <laughs> I spent half a lifetime making them very, very sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm a double dog dare. They dared me into giving in or taking them on. So basically, at some point in time, they became irrelevant, irrelevant to me. Mm. And at some point in time, I stopped being angry about them. Mm. But I literally pursued them. I pursued the guy who, who fired me to Australia and then about nine years later I hired him. You hired him? Yeah, I did. This well, is the craziest, forever. This is the craziest story. How, how, why did you hire him? 
Well, it's kind of funny because, first of all, I don't make a good enemy because I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I forgive. I forgive people easily. I make a good friend. I remember the good in people a lot longer than I remember the bad. But about three years ago, before he got in touch with me, I was in a place in England with two colleagues who knew him, two former colleagues of his, and he happened to walk into the, it was a restaurant, and they said, there's Peter, shall we invite him over? I went, yeah, why not? So we invited him over. So he told me how big and important he was, and I basically said, look, mate, one day they'll fire you, just like they fired me. He was probably in his late 50s, early 60s then. Mm. He said, but I want you to remember this. You know where the bodies are buried, I don't. You could add value to my business. I've seen this German colleague of yours who's developed his business and his technology is nowhere near as good as ours, but you know how to sell it. You know how to set up a distributor network. Remember this day, when you leave or when they fire you, give me a call. So three years later, they fired him and he gave me a call. <laughs> They'd excluded him from every part of the world except America mm. and his non-compete. So I sent him to America. And for the first three or four years, the cost of traveling to and fro probably was three times what I actually paid him personally. Wow. When he was 75, my daughter gave him a re recycled teenager badge. <laughs> he had energy and enthusiasm and he basically did a great job for the business. Amazing. So this guy who fired you, or, or at least he played some kind of role, right? Well, he was the manager responsible for the distributor acting in England. Mm. So, you know, it's it, there was a, probably a long lead in the decision-making process. Mm. But I don't care. Yeah. It was history. Yeah. So what else have you learned, um, you know, throughout the the course of how many years have you been in business? 42. 42 years. What would Basically, you... I bought 48% of the business on the 1st of April, 1979. Mm. So April Fool's Day has always been a lucky day for us. Yeah. So what advice would you give to clean tech entrepreneurs based on your business experience who are, you know, maybe in their first couple of years or maybe they're five to ten years along? Well, understand some things. First of all, it's your responsibility. It's not somebody else's responsibility. Um, it's really, really important to be numerate. As a journalist, you wouldn't be a journalist if you'd got no command of the English language. You know, you've got to be able to write. Well, how do people <coughs> run a business if they don't really understand the numbers? You can't rely on third parties. You have to know enough to be dangerous so that you make good judgment calls. Um, be aware that almost nobody ever wins in lawsuits except the lawyers. Work on the principle, if you do nothing wrong, you can still get sued, but there's not likely to be much damages involved. Um, depending on where you are in, in your own knowledge and experience, uh, make sure that you surround yourself with people who've got complementary skills, people you frankly can trust, which is really difficult to do. But always remember that you're doing the right thing for yourself, so most of the people that you surround yourself with will do the right thing for them. So try and make sure that you've got like-minded people whose view of success is the same as yours. 
But if it was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah, that's true. And who are your role models? Is there anyone who, you know, you it could even be a book or, you know, it doesn't have to be someone you met in person, maybe it's someone you know personally or is a historical figure? I don't have any. Oh, okay. Uh, I know that's a wrong answer to the question, but <laughs> I don't network. I live in my little world. I've realized that in our micro world, sometimes we can get things done because it's under our control. Do you have a favorite quote or motto? Well, I basically say to everybody, find reasons to be cheerful. Mm, I like that. That's, no, that's a personal quote. That's a motto. I'm mm. a continuous improver. No matter how bad it is, it might have been great before, but if it's terrible today, deal with today. If you can't find a reason to be cheerful, if you can't make it better than it is today, it's time to quit. So just find a reason to be cheerful. Mm-hmm. You know, do all your whining and I do it myself and get upset as you like and get as wound up as you feel like. But at the end of the day, find reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm. Find something you can improve because human beings need hope. Yeah. And I'm no different. No matter how bad it is, if you believe that it's going to be better in the future, then, you know, you your own morale is up and the morale of the people. Mm. So that's it. I yeah. try to be cheerful. Nice. Um, <clears throat> what does your dream house look like? <laughs> my dream house is the house that my wife built with no assistance from me whatsoever. That's just outside the three street exclusion zone from my grandchildren that she's built as a grandchild magnet. <laughs> so that's my dream house. Mm-hmm. A terrace overlooking the only flat lawn in Sheffield almost, you know, that is basically being set up to attract them. Um, but of course they're adorable, so we can't prize them away from the parents. <laughs> um, what do you do um, when it's time to kick back and relax? I read. Um, I play computer games, I go out with friends, I go on holiday, I don't have a mobile phone, or I do, but it's never switched on. So I am very obsessive when I am at work, and I'm very not obsessive when I'm not at work, I'm obsessively not at work when I'm not at work. So when I'm on holiday, I never contact the office, and I don't contact the office, I don't contact other people out of ours, and I don't let them contact me out of ours. I think that, so I'm obsessively here, and then I'm obsessively not here. Yeah, I think that is so important. We live in an age so full of distraction. Uh, I've been noticing this myself, you know, with my work, your WhatsApp's going, and then you've got email, and then you've got, you know, the internet and news, and yeah, that it's, um, it really creeps up on you if you don't guard your you know, you guard your time and guard your, um, your your cognitive ability, right? Just to focus and to be doing what you're doing. Um, so yeah, I love that. Um, what legacy do you hope to leave the world? Well, nobody remembers who the best businesses man were when, you know, the scientists and the poets and the engineers were around um so nobody will remember this businessman or any other businessman at any time in the future so what do i hope to do for rotherham i hope to build the factory of the future it's a very deprived area Mm. 
I think if I spend so much money that if the business gets sold, they won't ever be able to close it down. It will be the centre of this town, because I think I owe a lot to the town. Um, if I live to be 150, which I won't, we would out-excellence all of our global competition. We'd just do the right thing more often than they did, and we'd end up being number one in the world, which was my vision between April 1979 and April 2029, which is 50 years, which is not going to happen. Mm. We haven't given the customer sufficiently compelling reasons to give us a chance, is the bottom line. Um, so what would I hope for eight years from now, on the 1st of April 2029, a totally digitally connected business, one of the few in the world that are genuinely digitally connected, where uh, the salespeople that we have, most of whom are reliability professionals, can actually negotiate, change on the fly the design in front of the customer, change the price in front of the customer, put a sales order in, and it is almost untouched by human hand, right up to the point it's assembled and it's shipped out the door. All of the application engineering, all of the design engineering, all of the computer-rated manufacturing and coordinate measuring, all done digitally. Um, so that we have our people doing tasks that human beings should do that require intellect mm. and that are interesting. And mm. any repetitive task is better done by robots. We even got the world's first robotic um, sale, which cost one or three quarter million sterling for making small quantities, small, small batches of, of products. And I wouldn't say that we are um, ever going to achieve it for 100% of our business, but I think we can achieve it for 80% of the business. Yeah. And I think it'll give us a real, real edge because our purpose is to give our customers exceptional service. And if we can cut out any unnecessary human interventions, the key word being unnecessary human interventions, so that we can be slick, demonically slick, and give customers what they want pretty much instantaneously, I think that would be something for our little world, something I could leave to my daughter, yeah. or I could leave for the you know, one generation or two generations after I'm gone. I think the business could be, would be so well run at that point in time, it would take a full 50 years to destroy it. Mm, yeah. But why wouldn't you? Yeah, so <clears throat> what gives you the most hope that the world can overcome the challenges of the climate crisis? I don't really have any hope other than human ingenuity. So I'm a chartered engineer. I'm a terrible engineer, but I'm a chartered engineer. And I'm both an honorary and actual fellow of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers. Um, not a particularly good engineer, but I'm a decent chartered engineer. I'm good at getting the best out of others. So human ingenuity. Um, I think we don't know what will save the world today, but I have hope that we will invent what will save the world today. Or maybe we'll get very um, much more interested in space travel and find another world to go destroy after we've destroyed oh, this one. Sure but, well, yeah. I don't know, but I, I think the real issue uh, with the world is economics is the study of scarce resources. Mm. 
making any more earth but we've got more and more people on the earth and if you get fixated on gdp growth and if you've got population growth so that it's taken millions of years to get to today and in 30 years you double you double the number of people and you double the amount of intensity on the earth's resources well that's only going to go one way so i think the only thing that can make a real difference to the world is frankly depopulating mm. it's basically having a stable or slightly declining population is probably the best thing that humanity can do for itself but i always find reasons to be cheerful there's somebody somewhere today that's inventing something that i know nothing about that's going to make a huge difference to the planet yeah. and i think eventually the politicians at least some of them have got their act together i think business people probably understand that you're going to lose your social right to operate if you don't do something about it and you're going to get priced out of existence because the cost of your emissions there's going to be two profit and loss accounts there's going to be a normal one and there's going to be not just the governance and not just your social impact but i think the most important one is going to be your environmental impact and businesses are going to get punished they're going to get punished by society they're going to get punished by governance they're going to get taxed out of existence so i think a combination of human ingenuity and probably stick 